All right, while Paul's doing that, uh, I'll get started. My name's Trevor Jones. I'm uh, the Director of Museum Collections and Exhibitions at the Kentucky Historical Society. And this session, we're going to talk at you as briefly as possible today because we want um, you to get to work. We're going to actually come up with some practical solutions to some collections problems today, and we need you to do that. This session is a follow-on to last year's session, which was the History Museums Still Need Objects. Was anybody there last year for that one? One. That's good. Good. So I will. I will definitely. I was like, I won't recap if everybody was there. But uh, so last year we really looked at the the um, issue of uh, our collections and some of the problems that we have with them. And so I want to just ask you um, a couple of questions. So um, raise your hand if you think that your institution might have too many objects. Um, we'll start with that. If you think you might have too many objects in your collection. All right. So how about um, raise what? Too many, but I could use the same number if it was just a better focus. We will talk about that. <laughs> um, how about if you don't think you have enough money to care for them? How many people think that? Okay. All right. Um, does your institution do the following? Do you assume that you'll always collect more stuff? Does your institution just basically assume that that's collection mission goes on forever? All right. That's interesting. So just split there. Um, do you, in your advertisements or in your conversations or with the board, do you advertise the number of artifacts in your collection? Do you say, we've got 100,000 pieces and that makes us great, okay? Um, do you um, behave like you exist to collect stuff, not to do awesome things with the stuff? Do you feel that like that's the case? Some of all? Okay. All right. Um, so, the sort of the premise of this session is that the environment in which we collect has changed, but the way that we do collect right now has not. And we've got some challenges, and we've got some really big opportunities in the field, and this is the time to move forward with those. Um, so just some things to think about is if you're collecting contemporary stuff already, you know this, but the increase of material culture in the 20th century means that if we're not drowning in objects already, we could easily be so in the future. Um, we have dramatically increased expectations among our users of what it means to serve the public, which creates both great opportunities for us to use artifacts, but also some big challenges. Um, and digital tools are changing a lot of the stuff that we do because now we can see sort of the forest of collections that everybody has uh, across the country instead of each museum collection existing as its own independent piece completely separate from all other institutions. So um, that digital world is making some things easier and is making some things harder. So last year, we really got some agreement that we need change. And so today, so we still need objects. That's what we decided. But these were sort of the givens that we're going to operate on today. These were the things that we basically uh, agreed upon uh, as a group. Last year, I think we had like 100 people um, to do that. Um, and these were the big things that we talked about. Um, so we've got too many objects that we don't need, um, and we've got uh, just too much stuff that's, that's uh, when I think about the analogy, I think about it being um, that your collection should be the sail that's propelling the ship through the water, and it should not be the anchor that is, that is rooting you in place. And we have too many pieces that don't help us or don't support us do what we need to do. Um, Sometimes they don't do the story, tell the stories that we need them to. They don't help the mission in that way. Um, 
Certainly, a lot of us have too many duplicates, either in our own collection, or we have the same stuff that the place down the street has, and we have nearly identical pieces we're all carrying for very similar items. Um, and there's a real cost to these problems that, that if you think about, and I've broken this down <coughs> to my own institution, I know what it costs me to put an artifact on the shelf from the time that it comes in. I know what it costs me per square foot per year to store artifacts. And when you total it up, it's terrifying. Um, my division is a colossal financial drain on my institution if I'm not using those collections to benefit the institution. So there is a real cost. We don't really talk about the money cost, but if you think about if you're storing artifacts in perpetuity and they're not helping you accomplish your mission, you're actually preventing your institution from achieving its mission. Um, so the other thing is when you've got all that clutter, sometimes you, it's really hard to see the gems. Um, so if you've got 10,000 pieces and 500 of them are great, it's hard to sort that out if, if that's the way you're dealing with it. So um, we're going to talk about ways to solve some of these issues today. And so we're going to start talking about change and, and how we can make it uh, work. And a lot of times this problem is so big and seems so insurmountable that you can't get a handle on it. And where I don't want to be as a professional is I don't want to be talking about this and bellyaching about that we have you know, collections that don't fit our mission five years from now. I want us to start moving the field forward. And so, but it's easy to get overwhelmed and say, this is too big of a problem for us, we can't deal with it, and then just kind of complain about it again. So what we've done is what Paul's going to talk about is we found some bright spots, some places that are, that are doing good things and the world that shows you that the world can change. And that's what we're going to talk about is how do we build on some of these kind of ideas. So I'm going to turn it over to Paul to talk about what's good in the world of collecting. Okay, I want to spend about five minutes just talking about some of the things that we're doing at the Wisconsin Historical Society. I wish I could say that the measures that we're taking are all part of some grand scheme that was put together several years ago, um, but it really isn't. Um, the measures that we've taken over the course of the last several years, and it's taken us that long and we're just beginning, uh, are really the result of uh, larger things that are going on in our institution and are seeing opportunities for change. And some of those um, larger things going on are the merger of two uh, divisions in our organization, uh, the former museum division, which ran a museum uh, in Madison, um, and our historic sites throughout the state, uh, very different ways of looking at collections. Uh, we are planning a new storage facility uh, that will be completed in three years' time. That's presenting us some opportunities. And we are starting to plan for a brand new history center, uh, which also is providing us with some opportunities for us to deal with some of these collections management issues. Um, first of all, with the merger. Uh, after we merged the two sites, uh, we merged the staff, the curatorial staffs of both former divisions into one staff collections committee. And it became very obvious to us that our approaches to objects and our view of the value of objects to our mission were somewhat different. So what we did was we developed a collection acquisitions plan, a policy that went site by site museum by museum, and forced us all to articulate what our role in that particular site or museum is, how it relates to the mission of the overall organization, and 
How does that impact the collecting plan that we have for that? What are the parameters of collecting at each of those museums and historic sites? It was rather interesting. Um, those uh, policies really spell out the kinds of things that we will collect. Um, and it's somewhat restricted based on either geography or theme or some other vital factor that is crucial to defining that particular museum or historic site. What was the difference between the philosophy of collecting the sites in museums? I'll get to that in just a minute. <laughs> um, that gets us to the next item on that, is the tiered system of collection management. Is we developed a tiered grid uh, that divided our collecting uh, into permanent collections, historic structures, education collection, and consumable collection. Um, with the museum in Madison, it was all about long-term preservation and perpetuity. It was primarily about documentary value uh, of artifacts in the collection. And that was the only model we had so that when the opportunity presented itself for us to acquire authentic artifacts as mere exhibit props, we treated that the same as everything else. We would acquire that, put that into the permanent collection, and intended to keep that in perpetuity, even though the programmatic need may no longer be there at some point, because we had no other model. The sites division had a model because they deal with some of those objects, but a lot of their collections were really program-based. We have everything from uh, a local history museum that is more aligned with the mission of the Madison Museum as far as collection management goes, uh, collect documentary material in perpetuity documenting that particular locality, and we have Old World Wisconsin on the other end, which is a living history museum. The use of collections there are far different than the museum in Madison. The value of collections there is far different, just as valid to the mission that we have, but we can't hold them to the same standards of collections management as we do the museum in Madison because the purposes of those objects are very different. So what we did was we created this grid, and I have copies up here if you'd like to grab one at the end of the session. We uh, divided it into columns for permanent historic structure, education, and consumable. And then basically we filled in the cells. The, uh, the rows are value to mission, primary uses, preservation goals, risks, accountability, provenance, authenticity, accessioning through the collections committee or not, numbering protocols, and then what is the process for formal deaccessioning uh, of those? And that really helps to guide us because now our combined collections committee, when each curator comes to the committee with a proposal for something new to add to the collection, they recommend which of those tiers of uh, something. Have a on that? We do. Um, what? Trevor, why don't you pass that out? And I'm just going to. Um, I'll uh, allow you to just kind of look this over at your leisure because I want to move along and hear what you all have to say. Um, but I, I throw this out here, and it's something that we're constantly revising and tweaking. Uh, I suggest it could be a model for some of the things that you do if you're in a similar situation. But uh, it really forced us to open our eyes and say, you know what? Not all things have the same value to us. They have different values, and they're all valid. 
We just have to be upfront and honest about why we're acquiring the material as it comes in. And also to be upfront and honest with the donor of that material. We don't want them to assume that if we're adding something to be used in an education program, that it's going to be with us forever. So what we do is, uh, with the deeds of gift that we send to the donor, we make it quite clear that if it's to go into a permanent collection or an education collection, so there's no confusion about that. And if they want us to collect something in perpetuity and we feel that it isn't, doesn't fit that particular um, area of the collection, we're upfront and honest with them about it. Um, the other thing is that our acquisitions uh, policy really helps us as well because now that we know what each other is collecting, at least in our organization, we're better, better able to marry um, an object to a mission at one of the museums and historic sites. And perhaps it was offered to the museum in Madison. We go to collections committee. Museum of Madison doesn't want it, but Old World Wisconsin feels it could use it as a type specimen. Um, that is something that has really uh, moved forward for us and enabled us to uh, handle those acquisitions uh, more efficiently. Um, also, with an acquisition policy and a collections committee, how many people have collections committees that make decisions on things? Excellent. Uh, you probably discovered that, you know, saying to a donor that you're turning down some material, saying, well, the committee decided against this. It's nothing personal. It's not you and me. Uh, it's like this faceless committee out there uh, is the bad guy. But it's also great to be able to um, point somewhere and say, you know what? We may not be appropriate, but there's somewhere else in would also be appropriate, we'll get to that uh, shortly. So we found that this tiered system was a real benefit to that merger of museum and historic site divisions. Um, collection development plan. Uh, this is something that pertains to the museum in Madison. Uh, as I mentioned, we are in the initial planning stages for a new history center. We're using this as an opportunity to totally rethink what it is the State History Museum should be doing and the role it's playing, not only within our institution, but vis-a-vis -vis all of the other historical organizations in the state. And we asked ourselves, you know, are we merely the sum total of all the local historical societies? That is, we're competing with them for every item <laughs> that we could possibly get. Or as a state museum, do we have a unique perspective that we can offer a different set of stories uh, that kind of intersect with the stories that they tell, but from a unique perspective. And we decided that was indeed the case. What we would decide to focus on are those stories that help explain historically the identity of Wisconsin. And co coming to Wisconsin from the outside, I recognize that Wisconsin has a distinctive state culture, politically, socially, economically, culturally and identifying the qualities of that state culture and the historical forces behind it then enabled the staff of all of our divisions and outside historical consultants to get together and identify those stories that help define Wisconsin as a place. Those stories are the things that we can basically develop a collections development plan, basically what collections do we need to document and tell those stories we identified as critical? We are just in the initial planning stages of that, so I can't tell you about success. Um, but it's something to think about. Um, if you were to narrow your focus and think about the things that are truly important about your theme or your locality, what would those stories be? And what are the essential artifacts that you need to tell those stories? 
The other great thing is, um, I'll skip down to the bottom one, systematic documentation project. We are moving into a new storage facility in three years. Ever since 2008, believe it or not, the state of Wisconsin has provided us with the funding that we need to prepare the collections for a move. <laughs> um, and it wasn't a hard sell at all. I think the main thing was risk management. That, okay, we're, we're subjecting the collections to great risk, and if we haven't properly documented them, we don't necessarily know whether we've lost something in transit, what the damage might be, et cetera, et cetera. Great tool for convincing government <laughs> that you need to do something with collections. Ever since 2008, what we've been doing, systematic reinventory of the entire museum collection in Madison. It took us about a year and a half to reinventory 100,000 historical objects. All the historical, non-archaeological objects we have in Madison are now reinventoried, given better brief descriptions and digital image of every object. That is a sea change for us. And if this building never happens, we are already reaping the benefits because we get frequent requests from researchers, uh, uh, potential borrowers for exhibitions, and within minutes, we can actually do a search and send them JPEGs of the material that we have in the collection. It is just a life-changing uh, experience for us. And we are very fortunate that the state was behind that. But what it also does is when we consider something for the collection, we're able to go back into the database and quickly check to see how many of those we may have in the collection already. What do they look like? Are they very, very similar to the things that were being offered? Very important for us. The, uh, we are just finishing up the archaeology uh, inventory. And uh, that one, we uh, are only uh, photographing the diagnostic materials um, in that collection. But for the historical materials, we're embarking on phase two. Phase two is basically taking catalog information about the object's histories from old catalog cards, accession files, entering them into the database as well. Because that information will then help us to identify in the collection development plan and all those stories I mentioned, okay, well, how do we stack up? If we want to tell the story, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the collection? The other aspect of uh, what we've been up to recently is a bit divorced from the others, but is just as uh, crucial for the um, development of a sustainable collections model, and that is society-wide we developed a collection uh, deaccession policy with specified criteria for deaccession. So, you know, you've got the usual duplication, you've got deterioration or damage, uh, you have, we have repatriation um, in there as a, as a criterion. Uh, we also have the sort of inverse, converse, of the collection development plan or the uh, acquisition plan. So we have a statement in there that something is, can be deaccessioned if, if it is no longer in scope, if it is out of scope. If it were offered to us today, we would not take it. That is actually a criteria that's board approved in the deaccession policy. So, as you can see, all of these kind of fit together and didn't come out full-blown out of some grand scheme, but they are a few bright spots in our organization, and uh, we're very excited about it. It's going to take us another several years to just fully realize uh, a lot of this stuff, and one lesson that we learned is incremental change is important. Don't expect this to happen all overnight, but make steps toward this uh, concept of sustainable collections. 
There are some other bright spots as well. Um, in Maine, uh, Maine Archives and Museums has embarked on a project to document and evaluate the holdings of collecting institutions throughout Maine. The Maine Cultural Institutions Outreach Project is attempting to identify local collecting institutions in all of Maine's towns, gather data on their holdings and institutional needs, and connect these keepers of Maine's local heritage with a larger network of like-minded colleagues through regional workshops and professional development opportunities. In those workshops earlier this year, MAM unveiled its Values Portfolio Workbook, a guided self-study for creating a values assessment ranking system. The VPW provides a framework for assessing an institution's holdings and can be used as a tool for collections development program of acquisitions and deaccessions, resulting in a more sustainable model of collections care synced with institutional goals. Here we see a case study from the portfolio for Reed Field Historical Society Museum, in which specific objects and collections are identified and ranked, taking such factors into account as uniqueness, significance, and relevance to mission and audiences. Also included are notes about standards for the management of each of these items. Some institutions are recognizing that not all authentic artifacts need be preserved in perpetuity that the value of some of these objects relates not to documentation and research, but rather to illustration, interpretation, and hands-on learning. The Horniman Museum and Gardens in London opened a hands-on-based gallery featuring 3,700 objects from a handling collection that has a set of collections management standards separate from that of its permanent collection. Some of the objects from the handling collection likely are similar or identical to objects held in other repositories. And today, it's easier than ever to get a sense of the larger universe of museums and historical societies, their collecting scopes and holdings through amalgamated online databases. Many of you probably know that in 2011, ASLH, in partnership with American Heritage, launched the National Portal to Historic Collections, a searchable online database of tens of thousands of objects from about 100 institutions across the country. There are similar initiatives in a number of states in Wisconsin, for example, we have Wisconsin Heritage Online, which is now called Recollection Wisconsin. And then there's Past Perfect Online, which features more than 3 million items from about 400 institutions nationwide. Well, with these and other bright spots out there, our profession is poised to turn its attention to the development of standards and best practices for the concept of sustainable collections, focused missions, articulated acquisitions policies, tiered systems of management, improved documentation, and responsible deaccessioning. We're now in a position to identify the challenges and opportunities associated with the concept of sustainable collection, and that's where you all come in. Trevor. Okay, so we're going to divide you guys. We're going to actually, you're going to divide yourselves and self-select based on what you want to talk about and uh, um, come up with some solutions for us today. So we basically have five groups um, that we have suggestions for. We've got uh, um, little documents up next to the table so you can try to cluster where you would like to. Um, and then you can uh, take notes. What I'd like you to do is, if you, once you get into your groups, is appoint somebody that's going to share your results with the rest of 
uh, the session today, and then somebody who's going to be a note taker. You can use the big pads if you want to. You can use a piece of notebook paper. It doesn't matter to me. Um, we came up with these groups um, because we thought that these were the big issues that we needed to talk about. So if you want to talk about um, stopping the bleeding, how do you make sure that you only get artifacts that you need in your collection and get, come up with some solutions for dealing with that, that's the first group. The second group, how do you determine what you already have in your collections that might be there, that might not be mission related, not be helping you further your mission? Uh, um, call it, how do you cut out the artifacts that you don't need? What are some ways that we can easily um, and cost effectively uh, deaccession artifacts or other methods? Um, rethink it, how do we make flexible standards of care? Um, if you're like what Paul was talking about, if you've got artifacts that are designed um, or maybe not as important, how do you figure out what that flexible standard should be? Uh, and the last one is the Maverick group, that you're not interested in any of those things, and you can self-select and go back and uh, talk about whatever you want, but you've got to report it back to us. So if none of those appeal to you, you can go be a Maverick and, and discuss that as well. So what I want you to do is think about um, when you divide into whatever group you want to be in, look for the opportunities for change. What are some bright spots, big or small, you know, whether you see change could happen. And it, it doesn't have to be you know, on a massive scale, it can be very small. Um, and then think about, um, we're all pretty, probably pretty used to do this, doing this, the opportunities and threats for that topic. You know, what, are, what are good things that could happen? What are some potential pitfalls if we, if we move forward with this? Um, and then, this is the big one uh, for me, is can you brainstorm some ideas for persuading the rest of the field to agree with you that this needs to be done or this is a good method? Because that's part of it. Um, and then you can think about um, practical logistical issues. Are there um, funding models that we need to change? Um, one of the things that Paul and I have talked a lot about is that there's not a lot of money out there for basic inventory. You know, very non-sexy inventory. How do we, how do we, you know, the things that we need to change, what are some ideas for convincing funders that this is important? Um, and then, so at the very end, you can, or at the very beginning, appoint a spokesperson to report to us and then have somebody who's reporting your ideas. Because what we'd like to do is have you turn in your ideas um, and we will save those and we will share these with the, the rest of the field once we're done. Um, at the end, remind me if I don't rem again uh, mention it again, but I've got sign-up sheets that are keeping me in the loop. And so um, what we'd like to do is if you care about this topic, if you don't, that's fine, but if you care about this topic, you want to be involved, um, we're going to create um, some communication channels to keep discussing this. And what we want you guys to do is go and try some stuff at, at home and then help share some of this information so we can start um, changing the conversation, we can actually make some progress with this issue. So if you'd like to be in any of these groups, um, uh, Stop the Bleeding is up here. Um, what's that one? Rethinking Rethink is there. Maverick's back there. I think Cullet's, is that Cullet? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, well, that must be documented what, over there. Yes. Okay, documented over there. So decide where you want to go and, and go there. Appointed the spokesperson to, to speak to our group, do so now. Decide who the spokesperson is. Report back in. You guys are going to start. <laughs> okay. We have we have a pretty interesting situation. 
restrictions. We were talking about um, the importance of spelling out when it's appropriate to have a restriction to your collection, and we would probably say very rarely, if ever. Um, I think you just have to be upfront uh, about that. How many of us are saddled with collections that have restrictions that you will keep something forever, and we don't necessarily want to do that? Um, and then a collecting plan, and we were talking about um, uh, exhibit-driven collecting plans, um, that you may actually want to keep material for a permanent um, collection, also use it in a long-term exhibition, but the importance as you're planning the exhibit to work in all of these back-of-house collection management um, issues, allowing proper time to develop a coherent plan so that you know what to say to donors when you're approaching them. Um, it could, it's easily misconstrued that you know, a donor will think that anything that they have then, since you're approaching them is important to you. And you have to be, you know, you have to know what you're asking for at the outset. Plus when you're planning that exhibition, as we all know, you know, exhibition planning, just rush, 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 get things done. Uh, forget about all of those protocols that we discussed before because it takes too long. Uh, why not build all those protocols for review, acceptance, processing into the exhibition plan? Convince whoever it is that makes the decisions in your organization regarding exhibitions to factor that in because we want to be responsible about the things we're taking in when it's for exhibition or other programs. So that's kind of what we talked about. All right, let's move over to document it because that's sort of the second, second stage of figuring out what, what do we have. Um, we're, we, the non-sexy table, sorry. Um, basically, we, we um, talked about some of the things that happen that, that create these documenting needs. Um, but one of, one of my favorites was uh, location by institutional memory. Um, that people who have been there for a long time remember where things are. Um, and then they go away and we don't remember where they are. But really, what documented requires is manpower, just manpower. Um, we talked somewhat about um, how to ID things if you find it on the shelf and you don't know what it is, um, and the challenge of um, bringing in skills, how to get things identified, um, discussion of using social media, putting things up on your website, putting things on Flickr, or if your institution is a little more shy about owning up to not knowing what you have, uh, a specialized listserv, um, and identifying, we were talking as bird mounts, that Audubon has a user's group that you can a little more discreetly say, anybody know what this mount is? Um, in terms of doing inventories and making sure you, you have everything listed in, on, on a database or in some way, quick and dirty as opposed to detailed and 100% accurate. Um, descriptive, if you don't know the name for it, you can describe it. Um, and having that in a recording system, whether it's catalog cards or a database, is much better than not having any record at all for that object because you haven't found the expert who can tell you exactly what it is. We talked um, also about what system to use uh, in terms of documenting. I think almost all of us are now using some kind of electronic database or 
system. Um, Excel um, gives you the basic stuff. I mean, if you can't get a decision on which of the great bells and whistles, you can always start with Excel. Uh, Has Perfect is very popular. I was talking about Final Maker Pro, which is my favorite, and um, have used it in many museums, ranging from exceedingly small to the anthropology collection and field museum. Um, so it can go big. Um, and one of the really interesting ideas that came up was um, if you have someone who is donating a large collection, use them as the cataloger. They know what it is. Uh, ask them to volunteer and provide, help you catalog the collection. One thing I did want to add to um, Paul's list is when you take something on temporary deposit, make sure you have made it clear what will happen to it if the donor doesn't pick it up, because otherwise you still have the junk and, the, and no authority over it. And I want to piggyback on that comment too. Um, the state of Wisconsin, actually, with our assistance, has a um, has a law in place regarding abandoned property. I don't know if every states most, do states well. most states do. Now. And and what we do is, along with the temporary deposit, we provide them with a copy of that law. As 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 do we. Yeah. So remember, if you're taking something on temporary deposit, you need to be clear that you're not going to keep it forever if the donor doesn't want it. Great, thank you, some good ideas there. All right, let's move over to Cullet. So once we know what we've got and we've figured out we don't want some of it, what's next? Okay, we kind of broke it down into issues and solutions. So some of the issues were not having a DA session policy in the first place, um, uh, worried about losing public's trust or um, donor support, um, which is kind of the perception of getting rid of things. Um, <laughs> having broken or damaged items and trying to evaluate what's valuable, what's not. Is it broken like it's trash and we should get rid of it? Is it broken like this is worth having a conservator actually fix it? Um, government red tape or uh, institutions that have to deal with that. Um, and then the step of, okay, now we have permission to get rid of it. What are we doing? How are we going to get rid of it? You know, trying to get to that next step. Um, and the kind of the accession item is, I don't know whose background or where it came from <laughs> for things that are in you know, a found in collection items um, or other such things like that. Um, so some of the things that are some sort of solution um, that we discussed, um, uh, less um, or more public friendly uh, way for deaccessioning for um, loaning or doing permanent transfer to another similar institution. Um, so it's no longer your problem, but it's still, you know, it's still being kept from public trust. Um, transferring items to a different category, such as being in education or hands-on. So you're still using it, but you're no longer saying we're going to keep it forever. You know, wear away both. Um, in you know, discussions, in um, for, to get people on board, bringing up costs involved and in, you know, saving that in perpetuity. Um, so to your government authority to take it clear how much it costs to keep all this stuff forever. Um, double check the exact wording in your deed of gift. What have you been promising people in the past? Does that need to be changed? Um, make certain the public knows that um, the money from the accession stays in the questions care, um, so it's not the old, you know, way you were. Some examples, yeah. Um, and then 
potentially look at, at collection pieces. Um, and then we also discuss the abandoned property law. Um, yeah. Does anybody think their state doesn't have an abandoned property law? There are a few that still don't, but it's almost everybody. Yeah. And if you need to check, it's on the on Registrar's Committee that's of what I was, Association. That's going to suggest you, 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 can, you can look them up, but they, they, are, your, they are your friend. Um, great. Those are uh, good ideas. Uh, Rainey Tisdale, who was the uh, chair of the session <laughs> last year, um, has been working really hard with the uh, Boston Marathon bombing. She's been coordinating in Boston to try to get uh, organizations to, to collect immediate memorials and things like that. And one of the things that she's been thinking about, making her think about, is that they're collecting all this stuff now, but how relevant will it be in 50 years or how big of a collection do these organizations really need? And what she's really thinking, it's really, we don't have, she doesn't have the logistics worked out, but she's suggesting that maybe we start changing the conversation we have with donors um, at the beginning, which goes all the way back to, to stop the bleeding, where you don't promise that you're going to keep it forever, that we change that conversation with the donors and the expectation that this will always be relevant. And I'm not sure you know, exactly the language to do that, but we've, we've created the language or the expectation in donors' heads by talking about, about that. I've done the exact same, exact same thing. You give this to us and we'll keep it forever. Um, you can always know that your stuff will be taken care of by us. And maybe it's time to start changing that conversation just at the beginning with the donors um, so that, that it is clear that, that a collection is a growing, changing, moving thing. Um, because we created one impression, so it should be possible to change that perception over time as well. Yeah. One model that, that may be useful in that is the Contemporary <coughs> Art Museum. Um, because I know there are a number of contemporary art museums whose mission essentially is to collect the last 20 years. And so they need to keep deaccessioning right. and adding to the collection to, to maintain that mission. That's great. Yeah, I would love to have a language they use when they're talking to people about that. Yeah. Good. Great. Um, good stuff there. Um, let's move on to uh, rethink it. Um, talk about standards of care and flexibility there.
Um, we talked about it being a hard sell to the public that all items don't deserve the same um, level of care and that in general people, it's easier to tell the story of, well, I bought this on eBay and it's a, you know, it wasn't donated, it didn't have a family story with it. Um, and it's something we should consider. Um, focus, we feel like the field focus should be on individual, um, on individual organizations assessing what works best for them. And I'll just quote myself because apparently they liked it. Um, the field needs to be less bitchy about people making good decisions for their own institution. Stop talking about this purest view and say that's not very realistic right now um, and assume that our peers, everyone wants to take care of their collections, but that the higher priority may be as teaching tools or whatnot and that um, we should be supporting each other in the field and not like sniping with this purest view and uh, because that doesn't further the conversation or um, get us to a solution. Anything else? Very nice. I want a, I want a t-shirt with that on it, Trina. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We we actually uh, done the um, the will you support your collection with a, your donation with a monetary gift uh, thing, and it's been very very successful for us. And the reason why is we wrote the letter, and I know exactly what it costs us to get it on the shelf, and I know what it costs us to store. So I lay all that out. Um, and then it goes out with the deed of gift. So when the deed of gift goes out, the request for money to support the donation goes with it, and it has the self-addressed stamped envelope. And we've done, they're not huge donations, but it's certainly much, much better than we've ever done before with getting those. And the thing, what it's done for us, is a lot of times our monetary donors and our artifact donors are two separate categories that they might not overlap. People that give us funds and people that give us stuff. And it's what it's doing is it's starting to move them into the monetary donor because once we get that hook in them, we can start reeling them in um, and get donations year after year after year. So we're starting that conversation that there is a cost to it. I mean, too often, um, we used to hide that. We used to be like, well, you know, we're the state institution. Uh, you know, your tax dollars support us, which is you know kind of true now. Um, but it's not. It's not. We're, we're, we were hiding the true cost of what we do behind the scenes. And I think we need to be more upfront. And it's been fairly successful. So that, that is something I'd love to see more people try and have a bigger conversation about. Do you do that with every collection you take? Everything. Wow. Every time the DITA gift goes out, a letter asking for funds to support that. And sometimes it's a check for 10 bucks, and sometimes it's a thousand, and it just, you know, it, it depends. But I would say we're probably at like a 60 to 70% um, gift rate off that, which is really great. Um, because the thing is, once you've had that conversation and talked with the donor, or the curators usually do, um, and then they believe in your institution if they're willing to put something they care about in your institution. And so it's really easy to say, you believed in us enough, that's what my letter says, you believe in enough to us to trust us with your collection, would you believe in us enough to support us financially to make that possible? And so that, it's got some resonance, resonance because you've got your hooks already. One thing that would be difficult, though, is if you combine that message with the same message that we may not be keeping this forever. This is hard. This is hard. It is hard. It's difficult. It's a challenge. I mean, we got some big challenges. You just have to keep it till they kick. 
That's right. <laughs> Another t-shirt club. <laughs> keep it till they kick. Till they kick. Nice. I can see the nerdy here. All right, that seg segues very nicely into our Maverick group at the yeah. back. Uh, why don't you guys tell us what you talked about and, and what you want us to know? Okay, well, we were so Maverick, we didn't choose a leader. <laughs> well, no, we see. We get two leaders. No, I'm not. Talking about? <laughs> okay, so uh, the reason I would, I think we should just go around and say why we were in the Maverick or anything, where issue was. But um, for me, um, I felt like. Uh, I came from a big institution where we had formal collection development policies, and now I'm a very small institution. And one thing I found uh, is that um, if you try to uh, do a collection development plan, policy, uh, deaccession policy, and so forth, uh, based on the stories you want to tell, uh, you may be missing something because um, you may not think of a lot of the stories that are important. For example, uh, you may have a, a Vietnamese community in your area and you didn't think of that when you're doing the collection development plan. Or you may uh, find out that, that someone comes in with a great story on you know, women's suffrage in your area or something, and that wasn't in your plan. But of course, when you hear it, you realize, yes, this is an important story. So you have to listen uh, to your community and uh, go with the parameters. I don't have the space issues quite yet you know, that you all have, so so that's fine. Yeah. Um, as being the Mavericks, we didn't follow you the rules. So she tried. Yeah, she tried. The archivist did us. But we have an archivist, uh, a museum consultant, and then a curate, two curators. And we basically talked about our institutions and then needs and um, for me personally we have been through this process basically we're in a new storage facility we've done the documentation we have collections um, acceptance policy we have a deaccession policy we have the tiered levels of care so my situation is a little bit of every group that's why I just went into this one um, but one of the questions I brought up which Don was helpful is you know we're basically starting their archives as well as collection. Um, when someone brings in 10 boxes of documentation about the anti-fur initiative in Aspen in 1983, I say to the donor, I really want the stuff, but I cannot store it. I mean, as you can imagine, square footage uh, in Aspen is extremely expensive. Will you donate the $300 a box to make that happen, that I can scan this and have it documented digitally? So we talked about the digital side of things a little bit. We also briefly discussed the fact that um, I'm really worried about the digital age and not having anything to collect in documents and photographs. And of course, we have our objects, but not. Um, and is anyone talking about that in the field? And that's giving information about people who are talking about it. In fact, they don't have answers yet. Um, and then Madison, her issue was discussing the, the cultural the organizational culture in her institution that is not necessarily friendly to these concepts and how to bring that about um, without stepping on toes, without, you know, to do it in a positive way. So we were discussing that, and of course we didn't come up with great answers for her either, because um, it is a, a full conversation that affects all of these levels. Um, so that's basically how we spent our time. <laughs> 
Thanks. Dude. Always for Mavericks, right? Good, good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, we're we're pretty much out of time uh, today, um, but we're going to continue this conversation. And we've been um, talking, and, and uh, Paul and I have talked, and Randy and I have talked um, about future stages for this discussion. So we've talked about doing some sort of uh, listserv, trying to do some advocacy with um, some form some form a working group with ASLH or AAM or other organizations that need to be part of this discussion. Um, one of the things that we're looking for, some people clearly are good at this, is like a slogan um, or a name for the cause uh, to move this forward, to get people rallying around the fact that we need, there is change that's needed. We need to change perceptions in the field as well about what it needs to do for collections management. So if you have ideas for that, that would help. Um, and then also what other groups, you know, start um, extending the map a little bit. We're not the only ones in the history field, we're not the only ones that are dealing with this issue. Um, so you've got, you know, you've got archives that have the same thing, art museums, all kinds of other collecting organizations are fighting the same thing. So is there common ground across that we can start looking out and seeing if we can find, uh, I love the idea of looking at contemporary art museums and thinking about how are they doing things like that. We can learn from other people. So where are those, those things? So if you're willing um, to help us out in any of these ways, uh, to go back to your own, own institution and start the conversation, if that's what you need to do with wherever that is, or talk about these issues with your colleagues, um, or um, your, fund, your funding agencies. I've been uh, working um, uh, AM uh, map accreditation um, and uh, IMLS already um, to try to get them to start thinking about the first thing that you should do in a map review is ask whether the collections fit the mission before you talk about how they should be stored. And that switch the order of the questions. Um, and so I'd like to see that. Um, send us more ideas when you think of them. When you're thinking about something or if you try something at your institution, let us know uh, and tell us what works and what doesn't because we're all piloting things and it'd be great to learn from other people's uh, mistakes you know, so we can go make new ones. So if you're interested in any of those things, uh, we've got a sign-up sheet here at the front. Put your name and your email on there, and I will put you on the list, and we will contact you. The first thing we will do is send you the notes from this meeting. So you will get those if you want them. Uh, we'll send them out to you, and you'll get that, and then we'll, we'll keep you in the loop as we move forward. Uh, so if you want that, um, uh, come on up and, and fill that, um, that in for me, and then make sure you fill out your session evaluation uh, as well. Um, I'm going to uh, deputize Paul to go around and get people's notes uh, from the groups so we don't leave those. We've got two that have them on the wall, but the other, other three, we need, we need a set of notes uh, so we can type those up and send them out. Um, but thank you very much for coming today, and uh, we appreciate you joining in the conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Yes? Can I just shoot out two more uh, resources for Please. people to use? Um, one is the uh, Small Museum Toolkit. There is an entire volume on collection stewardship, including a wonderful chapter by Patricia Miller that basically is know what, what you have, know what it is, know where it is, know about it. Um, but the, that entire book on interpretations, Altamira Press, it's the sixth volume of the Small Museum Toolkit. All volumes are wonderful. Um, and also the STEPS program, um, uh, if you join the STEPS program, you get an incredibly amazing workbook that walks you through collections, care and collection stewardship, uh, among many other things. And one of the um, 
workshops that they have developed, and there should be trainers around the country, and it is a um, uh, collections um, statement uh, of uh, basically what you collect and why, uh, how to develop one of those. Great, thank you. All right, thank you very much.